meeting. So, um, yeah, the uh, meetings that you know started in COVID and ended up in parks and stuff, man. It's nice that this is still going. Like, because when the COVID hit, um, like like us all, I, I I tried the Zoom thing, and you know, I I I was really grateful for Zoom, but I needed to be with people, so I ended up going like the parks and everything else. So. Hey, we, we're real resourceful when we have to be, right? So, uh, anyway, uh, my sobriety date is uh, March uh, 23rd, uh, 1982. Um, my sponsor is Larry W. from Ranch Cucamonga, and my home group is uh, the Upland Men's Stag on Tuesday nights. And when I got here, I, uh, I was kind of taught, like, you know, get a home group, get a sponsor and get a sobriety date and uh if whatever sobriety date you guys have right now that, that could be your date you don't have to change that date you really don't i mean it's like i've, I've been blessed that um you know like uh a happy birthday to the happy uh to the birthday people and uh david that was up just up here uh he talked about the uh you know like five years it's like you know what's going on but you know why why aren't feeling good well i've had uh periods of that uh in my sobriety you know at 13 years i hit a wall uh and then at uh various times in my life in my sobriety it's been like an ebb and flow right so uh you know i got sober at 21 uh i started drinking at 13. Uh, you know, I can't really tell you everything that happened in, in that amount of time. But anyway, uh, I uh, just managed. The only thing I've done perfect in, uh, in 40, 40 years of sobriety is I haven't drank. I did that perfectly. Uh, my program has been, like like I say, it's been an ebb and flow, right? So uh, my, my sobriety works the best when I'm actively going to meetings, when I'm... Uh, uh, helping guys out uh, when I'm uh, in the big book, meeting with the sponsor and making that spiritual connection on a daily basis. My sobriety goes really good. Uh, you know, life, you know, life, as we know, it's just, you know, a series of this. And, uh, and I, uh, I, I'm more comfortable when I'm, when I'm doing those things because, uh, you know, we don't have the, uh, I heard a guy share in a meeting, uh, my wife and I were in a meeting down by the beach area, and he talked about like being a garden variety human being. And I was like, what does he mean by that? And basically he says, I can't, I don't have the option of taking the edge off with a drink or a pill or a joint. The only thing he, he can do to, to, to be comfortable in his sobriety is, is work the program and the, and the steps that we, that we were given, right? And, and just on a daily, day to time, just work the program. And, and uh, you know, my, my life is unbelievable, you know? I mean, it's like, I, I'm truly, truly blessed, you know? And uh, even like when things, when I think things aren't going my way or something, I just, I, I turn it around to gratitude. You know, I, I uh, you know, I had a little skin cancer thing and, and, uh, you know, they did something to my nose and I had a skin graft and, and uh, you know, I didn't get too bad with that, but I, I was just, you know, but when the, uh, when the uh, hospital bills came in, they were all paid for. 
through my insurance. So there again, I'm grateful. You know, it's like, I mean, it's like, it's, um, you know, it's like, I don't know, we're, we're truly blessed here really just to be sober. Everybody here tonight's sober. And, uh, you know, it's just a day at a time we have, right? It says in a book that we have a, a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And, uh, you know, and that's, uh, that's kind of what I, I try to do. Anyway, I, uh, um, I don't know. I'm just living life. You know, my, uh, I got a couple of children. My, uh, my daughter is 37, lives in uh, Austin, Texas. I have a granddaughter uh, from her, her uh, Megan, and my granddaughter, Olivia, and they're doing really well. And then I, uh, my son uh, lives in Oceanside, and I, I just uh, two, two and a half weeks ago, uh, I have a grandson now. And uh, you know, and that 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 little guy's gonna change my life, and I just know it. And I just, you know, I mean, I fell in love with it. When I laid eyes on that little baby, I'm like, you know, so. Uh, and it wasn't always easy with my son, you know, because he had a substance abuse problem, like we all do, and somehow he got cleaned up, and he, uh, he, you know, he's he's not really. He got sober, he detoxed on his aunt's couch and he's, you know, he's been off of heroin for uh, 10 years or plus and he's, uh, you know, he's got a really good job and everything and sometimes I kind of wish he had a program, but hey, whatever, whatever works for him, but uh, he's doing, he's doing well and, uh, you know, it's just life, you know, it's just, it's just relationships, it's just life, you know, and, it, but I learned here, you have to uh, accept life on life's terms uh you know and and it's kind of how is is how you react to things you know it's how i react to things and the the program the, all the steps and all the you know the readings and have and it, it's like um you know you know we're restrain a pen and tongue and all these all these uh things we learn here you know and uh you know i i uh i i got a job at a water district when i was uh First of all, I, I met a guy that was an electrician when I was newly sober. I'm like, what am I going to do with my life, man? And then I got a job as an electrician wiring houses. And then, and then the, when that slowed down, I, you know, miraculously through the through roundabout way, I got a, through people in the program, I got a job at a water district. And I was able to work there uh, 25 years as an electrician. I, and I retired from that place and uh, close to five years ago. And that would have never happened. That would have never happened. Because uh, when I drink, all bets are off, like a lot of you people, right? It's just, it's just like, all, you know, as soon as I take alcohol into my system, I have no idea where, what's going to happen, where I'm going to end up, or what's going to go on. And uh, it, it happened multiple, multiple times. And, uh, you know, and, you know, when I first got sober at 21, you know, I had to, like these old, these old, timers you know they really embrace you and everything but then you had the crotchety old guys who are saying i spilled more than you drank and all this stuff you know like you know and then one of my buddies told him well tell him if he wasn't such a sloppy drunk he would have got here before <laughs> but anyway uh i don't know i you know it says in the book too you know we we uh, insist on enjoying life you know we're not a glum lot and uh i don't know i just really enjoy uh sobriety you know and then uh, 24 years ago, I met my wife Ann in the program, and uh, in a roundabout way, I kind of started stalking her at meetings, you know. 
Yeah, so I, I was a stalker. So uh, basically, I found out what meetings she was going to, and I started kind of showing up at these meetings. And and uh, lo and behold, uh, finally uh, wore her down, and she uh, went out with me. And then, uh, so we've been married uh, 22 years, and uh, and we have a really good we have a really good life, you know. It's an AA life, you know, and it's like, uh, you know. I can't say enough good stuff about the program. And, and if you're new, relatively new, if you're coming back, just give it a chance, you know. And, and uh, what was spoken here earlier about getting a sponsor, working the steps, uh, you know, just put one foot in front of the other, you know, and don't, you know, and don't drink before the miracle happens, right? And somewhere in the book it talks about a miracle, and a miracle is, is that you don't ha you don't have the physical craving for alcohol that you don't want to drink, you know. There's it, somehow it was removed from me early on, but you know some people it takes it takes time, you know. And if you just uh, if you just don't drink today, you know, no matter what's going on in your life, and just put another day behind you, you know. This that old saying, you know, what a difference a day makes, because uh, I've been in situations like. I don't know why I wake up in the morning and I'm not really feeling it and I'm kind of like, ah. Uh. And then, uh, you know, and then, uh, I don't know. And then the next day, I, you know, the next day, nothing has physically changed in my life, but I feel better, right? So if you can kind of, for me, if I just kind of sit through those emotions, especially early sobriety, man, because we're, we're like, I mean, I was like uh, all over the place, you know, and, and uh, I was able to, you know, don't drink. You know, they say don't drink no matter what, right? So if you can get to these feelings and just say, okay, you know, I'm gonna just sit through these feelings I got. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm just gonna just write it out, whatever situation you got. And you'll be surprised. You wake up the next day and nothing has physically changed, but you feel better. So uh, that's happened to me multiple, multiple times. Anyway, I don't want to run into uh, my wife's time, Anne, because she's got a great story. So that's all I have. Thanks. Thank you. Go ahead and turn that on. She helps. So you want me to talk? Oh, turn this on. Let's see. Yeah. Fernando will get me all set up here. I'm wired. I'm wired. wired. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. So almost. Ooh, there you go. Oh, is that too loud? It's waffling. Is it? Oh. Okay. So you want me to talk for 45 minutes? Please. Okay. Or less. Or Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm good. Good evening, everyone. My name's Ann, and I am a grateful alcoholic. And um, great job, Jesse. That was awesome. He's a hard act to follow. <laughs> So you hear, I feel like it's, is it echoing or does it sound okay? Sound great. Well, it probably sounds a lot better than if I was here drinking, I would be slurring. So anyway, I really, I really want to thank uh, Les. Thank you so much for having me come out to speak. I, this is great. and. What a great meeting. I want to congratulate uh, Tim and Dave on your birthdays. And I want to welcome any newcomers. If you, um, you know, if, you, if you're anything like me, you know, uh, just to keep coming back, this is the best thing that has ever happened. Oh. 
has ever happened to me. I think I need to stay over here. <laughs> um, so, wow. Um, I'm just, you know, I have to share with you first. Um, you know, last night I went to my first Dodger game. I've lived in the United States for 40 years. And first of all, I know some of you that don't know me are hearing a wee bit of an accent. And I just want to let you know I'm not from Alabama. Is your thing? I'm from, I'm from across the pond. And I've lived here 40 years. And a couple of years ago, I started watching the Dodgers with Jesse. And I went to my first game last night. And it was really exciting. You know, it's so different than, than watching it on television. And, and you know, I was thinking on, on the way home, <laughs> I was thinking on the way home, you know, if I was drinking there, um, it would have been a lot different. Well, for, I probably would have got kicked out of there. And this morning I would have woke up and I wouldn't have remembered anything that happened. And I would have had all this remorse. And so I'm glad that I, that I don't live like that anymore. And, um, oh. <laughs> anyway, my sobriety date is January 28, 1992. I, I um, celebrated 30 years this past January. I, uh, I, have a, I actually have two sponsors. I have a primary sponsor that lives in Laughlin. She's been my primary sponsor for 28 years. Um, but she's 87 now and she's starting to get real forgetful. So about a year ago, I was talking to God and I said to God, you know, I really need to find a co-sponsor um, because I, I, it's important for me to stay current in this program and telling myself and and sometimes Billy was starting to forget. I mean, if you wanted to hide stuff from a sponsor, she'd be great because she would forget what I would tell her. You know, she's 87. Um, so I was talking to God, it took me about a year because, you know, when you have some time in this program, I mean, and I was with Billy 28 years, it's difficult. It's just not easy. Well, for me anyway, it wasn't that easy to find someone. So I was praying about it for a year and I was going to meetings and I was, checking people out and I wanted a woman that walked her talk and that she also talked about God. And that lady is here, my co-sponsor's here tonight, Lynn. I find Lynn and I'm, and I'm really grateful. We've been working together and I, I don't know, maybe two or three months and I'm really, really grateful. It's, it's just brought me a lot of peace. And um, anyway, and my home group is the Valley Alano Club. Um, I'm a secretary at the Wednesday night happy hour meeting at 5.30. And I get sober in the Valley Alano Club, so that's an, that's an important meeting for me to be there. And it's only five minutes from my office, you know. So, so anyway, telling you a little bit about me, I think I need to go to about 7.15. But it seems the longer you're sober, the longer I could talk, you know, because I have lots of stories I could tell you about in sobriety. <laughs> um, but you know, I was born and raised in Scotland. I'm the oldest of six children. And I grew up in a lot of fear. My dad was a periodic alcoholic. And he would go out every three weeks and drink. Now, my dad was a great man. He was a provider. He was a very quiet man. But when he drank, he was mean, and we were terrified of him. We used to hide under the covers when we'd come home, 
you know, and he seemed, he had this memory, he remembered everything from three weeks before, and everything that went wrong, I was always in trouble for because I'm the oldest, and so it's where was Anne, you know, how come this happened? And sometimes when he'd drink at home, my sister and I would watch him, because we used to try to figure out where his personality shifted, because he was really nice, and then all of a sudden, he'd get really mean. And we noticed he'd, he'd have one, one drink or two drinks, and he was okay, and then my sister says, it's that third drink, it's that third drink, he's like, he does this complete personality shift. And then and I used to laugh at her, because now I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's that first drink that, that gets me drunk. And, but anyway, my dad, he was a good man, we never went without, but there was a lot of verbal abuse and just a lot of fear. And I remember being in a family of eight people and feeling very alone and just feeling like I didn't fit in, you know, I'd be in a car with three or four other kids and I always just felt lonely and I was always managing kids and, you know, I got to learn about responsibility at a young age because if I didn't, you know, I was in trouble. So, um, so anyway, I, I didn't have my first drink till I was about 17 because I was so busy being responsible. You know, and I hated the first, the taste of my first drink. Um, it was vodka and orange juice. There was way more vodka than, than orange juice. But after I had one of those, and then I had another one, I just started feeling this warm glow. And I felt that huge hole in my stomach <clears throat> wasn't as big. And I felt I could start to talk to people. And then I thought I could sing. And then it, <laughs> then it got really bad because then I, was, I started to dance and do all kinds of stuff. And, and, um, and you know what, though? The thing is, I became just like my dad. And I became this really mean woman. I know you probably find it hard to believe, but um, I became really mean. And I would remember everything that everyone did, you know, to me. And then when I was drunk, I would confront people. And then I remember from a young age, having that remorse, the first thing would happen, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd think, oh my God, what did I say? You know, because I never drank just to drink socially. I never drank to have one or two drinks. It was always on. I drank to get drunk because I couldn't stand how I felt. You know, <clears throat> I just couldn't stand these feelings and it was just something to get me how I felt. But you know, um, that, I worked for a while, and at a young age like that, you know, it was fun growing up in Scotland. we go to these pubs, and, you know, and as a child growing up, I forgot to mention, as a child growing up, we'd, we'd go on field trips to castles and whiskey breweries, and it teaches how the, the malts and the blended whiskeys and all this, they would teach us how all that was made, and I remember thinking it was really boring, and... You know, because I, I never really did drink whiskey. You know, it was either vodka or wine. But, but I can appreciate it later, you know, because the teacher would tell us, you know, no matter where you travel in the world, you know, you can always be proud of your Scottish heritage. Little did I know that I would move to California and become a wineette. Just start drinking a bunch of wine. Um, I'm feeling like I have to, should stand back here. It seems like when I move to the right, oh, maybe it's just me. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so I, you know, we went to castles and things, and my mom was a great mom. She, my mom could have used Al-Anon. She was 
always trying to keep the peace and there was a few times she called the police on my dad and you know there was always a lot of drama going on but for the most part we had a pretty good upbringing today i realize after working the steps of alcoholics anonymous i realize that my father didn't have the tools that i have you know he he was the oldest of 12 and he really didn't know you know so i mean he did the best he could and my dad died he was a young man he was only 50 years old when he died of a heart attack so but anyway moving forward a little bit um you know i um i moved i came on vacation many years ago i told you how, well you know it's 40 years ago so i was ready to say then you would know my age if i told you how long ago but i i came on a vacation to um with my girlfriend that i went to school with and it was really exciting because i saved up for a whole year we were going to california and she had a sister that lived in pasadena and i was only coming here for six weeks and i had a great job with hilti fasteners in scotland you know they make um fastening tools and all of that and um so it was really exciting. I had took on a night job just to save, to have spending money to, to come to California. And um, so I come with Anne many years ago. And of course, that has uh, turned into a lifetime because what was a vacation is I've gone back. I go back every year, like at least twice every year. But I ended up staying here. And I don't know, is, is it me or is there something I can do to... Uh, we can go back to this. Huh? We can go back to this. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I figured... It's a little bit more comfortable for you, huh? <laughs> yeah. It might be because I'm... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Okay. Testing. Thanks, Fernando. Halloween's coming. Huh? Halloween's coming. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Put the, put the switch on. Okay. Testing. Oh. Testing. There we go. Okay, go on. You're good. Okay. Now I just need to remember where I was at. You were, you were with Oh, great. Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, I, yeah, this is much, but now I feel more in control with the mic. <laughs> <laughs> with the mic. Yeah, I was working for Healthy Fasters, came to Pasadena on vacation for this six-week vacation. I was going to go to Hollywood because I'd watched all these movies and we saw the Hollywood sign. And I couldn't wait to go see it. And so, um, but that has turned into a lifetime. What happened the third week I was here, and back then, my accent was really thick. I get so tired of people saying, pardon me, pardon me, can you say that again? And I thought, oh my God, that, so I really had to slow down. But the third week I was here, I met a man named Alex in a bar, of course, in Pasadena. And um, I had quite a few drinks, yeah, my accent was pretty strong. And there was live music in this place, it was Rubens. I don't know if anyone here would know Rubens in Pasadena. But um, anyway, I noticed he kept nodding a lot, but there was a lot of music in the background. and. You know, and I thought, oh, well, maybe he just doesn't hear me. But then when the band stopped and he says, you know, Anne, I have to tell you. He says, I'm having a really great time. He says, but for this last hour, I haven't really understood anything that you're saying. 
what he says, but it seems like the more you drink, though, that he says that you're starting to speak a little slower and I can hear you. But anyway, um, so Alex and I met, and then I kept extending my trip. I called my boss and I extended it for eight weeks, ten weeks, you know, and then Alex, you know, we, we fell in love and he decided it would be better if I stayed here because he had started, just started a company at the time here and he didn't think he'd do very well with the weather in Scotland. But I wasn't sure because I'm from a big family and I just didn't know how that would work. So anyway, Alex asked me to marry him and some of our friends and family thought that I was marrying him to stay in the country because I'd only known him three months. But I, I really didn't want to stay in the country at the time because I missed my family. And but I stayed and and you know and then you know and we were just drinking socially at the time back then. It was you know how it used to just be. Well, for me it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, <clears throat> and then you know then it was Monday and Tuesday because I needed to cut the edge and you know I drink wine all weekend and then Monday and Tuesday I'd have a hangover and I'd drink some beer. And then before you know it, I'm drinking Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And, and there was always a reason to drink. There was always a reason to drink. And so Alex and I got married in the December. And then I, uh, I got this great job out here working for Albertsons, uh, Albertsons grocery chain. But I was a district bookkeeper and I got to drive around and audit all the books in the stores. It was great. And uh, it was fun, you know, um, except when I had to go to Bakersfield. I didn't like going to Bakersfield. <laughs> and, uh, but one night Alex came home and he said to me, he says, you know, Ann, um, he says, I'd really like you to come into the business. He says he wanted to really grow the company and it would be good if I came in and I could handle the sales and the, some of the employees. And I, I wasn't sure about that, but drinking helped with that. You see, because I had no management skills. I never ever really knew how to manage people at the time. This was, this was yeah, well, like 38 years ago. So but I knew sales and that was my background in marketing and some accounting. But I did, I decided I would go in and try it. And I hated giving up my job at Albertsons because it was union pay back then. And it was, it was just great. But Anyway, I um, went into the company and it's actually, in hindsight, been one of the best decisions I ever made. So Alex and I, for many years, we you know, were building the company. We traveled all over Asia. We've traveled um, many parts of the world in Mexico, you know, and we're growing this, the company. We were actually, at the time, we were a, a manufacturer of gasket sets for automatic transmissions. And we're also a distributor of O-ring seals and gaskets. So I was growing the distribution part. And so that was going along great. And, um, but we're drinking more and more, you know. And as I said, there's always a reason to celebrate. You know, in our big book, it talks about, you know, we will come to that jumping off place. We will get so sick and tired that we just can't imagine living with this and living without it. And I was in that place for a good five years. But one night Alex came home and told me that he was going to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. One of our employees had a court card and he says to me, you know, Ann, he says, I'm having a problem. I'm making some bad business decisions. He says, I think I want to go to AA and I think I want to quit drinking. And now when I think back in hindsight, I really felt even before he went to his first meeting, 
I heard some surrender in that, you know, and then, you know, and he went to his first meeting, and of course I got a little scared, because, you know, I'm in such denial, because even though I couldn't stand how I felt, and this hole in my gut, and it was so uncomfortable in my skin, I was in such denial that I couldn't admit, you know, that I had a problem, but I didn't like how I was living. So he goes to these meetings, and he comes home with a big book, and he stays up all night reading this big book. And I get a little scared. But being the good alcoholic that I am, I don't drink in front of him, because I want to be a good example in case, you know, so I'm hiding my wine in the cupboard. And so the first week goes by, and then the second week he comes home and tells me, you know, um, he says, these are normal-looking people. And um, they're normal-looking people in these meetings. He says, I haven't seen one person, he says, that uh, has a trench coat or anything. He says, they, look, they just look like people that you'd meet in Target. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow. And so by now, we're heading into the third week that he's sober. And I thought, well, maybe if I could go to these meetings, maybe, maybe these people could teach me how to have a couple of drinks and stop. So that was my plan. So I came to my first meeting, uh, January uh, 28th, um, 1992, with a plan that you people could teach me how to drink like a lady. Because if I only had two drinks, I was fine. It's when I couldn't have more than that, and I couldn't stop on my own. I had tried it, and it worked maybe for a week, maybe two weeks. And I just couldn't do it on my own. So that was my plan. So I come to my first meeting, and I will never forget it. Uh, my first meeting at the Valley Alano Club in the big room, and we have these disco balls. And it's January, and there's 50 people in the room, and everybody's smoking, and there's ashtrays, and everybody's playing with these styrofoam cups. And I'm thinking, wow, I thought this was a bad idea. I don't know how I'm gonna sit through a whole hour. I thought of this, and, and I'm in this meeting, and every, people are sharing, and 20 minutes go by. And this woman shares. And this woman was three years sober. And this woman started to describe the feelings that she was no longer having, feelings that had subs or they had subsided. And she talked about she was not as fearful. She wasn't. She felt she was no longer paranoid. She she didn't have as much anxiety. She says she used to even look over her shoulder, and she had stopped doing that. And then she talked about this hole in her gut. She says, that huge hole in my gut. And sometimes I get emotional because I, I just think of the effect that it had on me, you know, that huge hole in the gut that I had, it was so big. She says, you know, it's gotten a lot smaller. And that woman spoke my language. For the first time in my life, I knew I was in the right place. I knew I was in the right place with all of you, but I just didn't know how I was going to stay because I thought, man, and you know what happened to me too? I actually had my first spiritual awakening, a spiritual experience I felt when she shared. I felt this peace come over me, and it was like a peace I had never felt before, and I knew I was in, I knew I was to stay there, and then I heard someone talk about, well, you work these steps, you get a sponsor, you do this, you do that, and you know, I'm such a rebel. You know, you guys were talking about, well, you need to surrender. And you need to surrender. And so I raised my hand one day. I was sharing. I said, you know, you guys are talking about surrender. Have any of you watched Braveheart? 
because we don't, in Scotland, we don't surrender. <laughs> I said, and then luckily an old timer said to me, an old timer says, well, honey, that's okay, but do you think you could surrender to win? He says, oh, I could do, I could do that. I says, that sounds like a good idea. So I kept coming back, but I was such a rebel because, you know, I always want everything, the laser version. I wanted to know if there was a laser way I could, I'm pointing, I'm used to talking about the steps, you know, behind me. I, I wanted the laser version of these steps and, the, and everyone was so kind. They just said, you know what, honey, keep coming back. Just keep coming back. And I've kept coming back. And just like Jesse said too, that, I feel grateful that I have the one sobriety date and, and I can keep that date and um, you know and it just takes whatever it takes and you know I started working the steps and I started going to meetings every day because also the Alex that I was married to we were married like 12 years at the time and I knew if I was still drinking and he was sober I didn't think it was going to work out and I loved this man and and you know our life started to change and I was looking and looking for a sponsor but I thought I was so unique I didn't find a sponsor and I was afraid to see another thing I thought I thought it was only people from Scotland that had secrets I didn't know Americans had secrets too <laughs> I didn't know that you had to. and so I was afraid to tell anybody anything because in my family anything you know about me you're going to use it against me so I, I was afraid to tell you. But anyway, I started working step one, two, and three. I started working with the ladies, you know, and I was current with one lady. In the meantime, I'm looking for a sponsor. And I didn't get a sponsor until I was 10 months sober. And I don't recommend that, but it was perfect for me. And, and you'll hear why. Um, but you know, so I'm going to meetings and Alex and I, our life is changing, it's getting better. We're getting bicycles, we're going to the beach and drinking cappuccinos. And I remember one day I was at the car wash in Upland and and just like this tree right here, I remember standing waiting for my car and I was like six months sober. And I remember looking at the tree and for the first time in my life, well, maybe my adult life, I noticed the leaves and the breeze and I remember thinking I've never noticed that before because I was so busy I was either hung over or drunk and I started to notice things in the moment I was catching glimpses of being in the present you know so my life was really changing and life was good and we both came up on I mean it was good but it was challenging because I'm barely not even a year sober and I had you know I was just starting to get ready to work on a four-step was just when I, just about the time when I find my sponsor, this lady Penny, a fine Penny. She's an attorney and she had moved out to Rancho from LA and she had just moved out there and I really liked this woman and she became my sponsor and she told me since I'd done step one, well we did one step one, two and three, I was to start writing columns on my four-step and I was doing that with her when I was 11 months sober. And um, then Alex and I celebrated one year sobriety. He had one year on January 3rd, 1992, and I had one year on January 28th. Two weeks later, my life, um, one year sobriety did a complete 180. Just the rug was pulled out from under me. I mean, it's, 
it's a long time now, but I, I will never forget those feelings. We met Alex and I were married uh, 13 years. He was 44 years old. And I woke up one morning and found him. And he had died in his sleep of a heart attack. No warning, no nothing, no signs. Um, and uh, to, I mean, it, it was just like, this is my worst nightmare. I had, you know, I had woke up and um, when I found him and I was just trembling, you know, I never knew that the body trembled so much. I mean, I was trying to dial 911. It was those older phones, you know, the push button phone. And I remember trying to hold this hand to press the numbers on the phone. I was dialing, trying to dial 911, and I couldn't believe it. And then I dial in 911, and and I'm getting her on the way. And then it, then I remembered I need to call Penny. That's right, and Alcoholics Anonymous. They told me if you ever have a major challenge, catastrophe, or whatever, you call your sponsor. And so the next thing I called Penny, and Penny was on her way to Los Angeles. She was supposed to be in court, and she was in Covina, and she turned around. She got somebody to fill in for her, and she turned around, and she was there. She came, and she was with me. And I, I'm about to tell you something that has really strengthened my faith in Alcoholics Anonymous, even though I've gone through challenges. I will never forget this, and any time I'm really having a hard time, I remember this, is Penny came back, she was with me, and I never got her for 10 months, but see, God had a plan, because when we were working together, Penny had told me, she says she had a husband named Jack that had died some years ago, it was quite a while ago, but we were getting to know each other, and I never knew exactly when. Well, that day when she told me to pack a bag, and I was going with her, you know, and um, and my t I had these two cats. I took, took I took my cats with me, and she says I was going with her. When I get into her car, she put her hand in my knee, and she says, "Anne, today is the 10-year anniversary of Jack's death." And even though you know. I was raised Catholic. I was raised with a punishing God, but I've never had a problem with God. I find a loving God and Alcoholics Anonymous. But um, in that moment, as devastated as I was, I mean, this heart-wrenching grief, I knew there was a power looking out for me in that moment. I didn't understand it. And you know what? I was mad at God, too, for a while. But I find out that's okay, because God, you know, understands. It was just my grief. But anyway, I couldn't believe it, but I knew I was going to be okay because it's like this was evidence. I thought, wow, what's the chances? No wonder I was waiting for her. God had her in mind. But, you know, so that, it was a really rough time, as you can imagine, you know. But you know what kicked in for me? In my first year in the meetings, because, you know, now I'm a year sober, I'm starting to feel feelings I have never felt in my life before. I didn't want to drink. That was a miracle. But I wanted to die with the pain. I was having the emotional pain. But what I did is I applied everything you taught me in that first year. Because in the first year, sometimes I'd go to a noon meeting and I would hear people saying, you know what, there'll be times that you'll sit on your hands. There'll, there'll just be days that you might do that and it works. And I used to think, you know, in my year before Alex passed, when I would hear that, I thought, God, that, that's stupid. Why would you want to sit in your hands? But, but you know what? It really works. I applied it, 
And for anyone that's anxious um, or has anxiety, um, you know, I just couldn't imagine the next day. And I would sit on my hands in the meeting and it, and it works. And I applied everything I would hear. You know, sometimes you might live 10 minutes at a time. You might go do the next indicated step, take a shower, have something to eat, go to a meeting. And all of that works. That's how, that's how I got through it. And, and then is to tell someone that was the hard part. It was hard for me. You know, and I used to think it's because I was raised in Scotland. It was hard for me to tell you about my pain, but I needed to tell you because I really didn't want a drink, and I and I did, and I, I shared about my pain because I found out too that this is a wee program. We just don't do it alone. You know, it's a wee program, and I did get to share, and I was able to stay sober, and I'm so grateful for staying sober. And you know, death has taught me a lot about living. Death taught me a lot about living, because we're sitting here tonight, and it's a beautiful evening, and I'm looking at the sunset, and and we're truly blessed, but we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I try to live life to the fullest, and um, and so what I did is when I was a young girl growing up in Scotland, I used to watch National Geographic, and on there I was always fascinated by the pyramids in Egypt. And being, I feel I'm an adventurer because I left Scotland at like 22 years old and, you know, and I thought nothing of traveling 5,000 miles. So I always wanted to go to Egypt. There's all these places I wanted to go. So in 1996, I went with 80 people on a, that I had never met on a spiritual pilgrimage with Marianne Williamson. And I went to Egypt and we chanted Om in the Great Pyramid. <laughs> And it was pretty awesome. And then I did some other, I did some other traveling. You know, I actually went to Machu Picchu and places. And but that was all the results of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I mean, there's just great things we can do here when we're sober. And then I was single for about seven years. And you know, because my sponsor was telling me too, I really I wanted to work through all of this grief, and I really needed to work on me. <clears throat> I needed to really learn how to love me. You know, and to get you know to get to the other side of all of that, and then of course, yeah, I continue. Oh, that's another miracle. I continued on with the company. This is a business in a male-dominated industry, and so I continued on with that company that Alex and I built. And if I didn't have an answer for something, it was in the steps, and I still have that company today. Even though I've stepped back a little bit, I have a great team, and you know, and but. It's just all the results of Alcoholics Anonymous and staying sober. But then I was single for seven years, and then my brother, Martin, knew Jesse before I did. He was uh, Jesse's friend. And um, I guess my brother was always trying to fix me up with people, with men, and he'd say, he was always trying to figure out what type I was looking for. And then he said, there's this really cool guy, Jesse. He's a, a stalker, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you should meet. And so Jesse and I had first met like some years before. He was dating somebody else, and I was dating someone. And I told my girlfriends that I was just looking at the menu that I wasn't ordering <laughs> at the time. And then, so anyway, we um, <clears throat> we then Jesse ran into Martin at a meeting, and my brother tells Jesse, my sister's not dating right now. And then Jesse called me, and he he showed up at my meeting, and. Yeah, he was sitting next to me, and 
I noticed before we were praying, he went to the bathroom and came back, and then when we held hands, his hands were ice cold. I thought, man, this guy's got really cold hands, but he told me that he went to the bathroom to wash his hands because they were real clammy, but there was no hot water. It was ice cold water. <laughs> it was ice cold, but anyway, Jesse and I dated for a year, and then we, um, we got engaged, and then we had a beautiful wedding in the year 2000 down in Fallbrook. And I had a bagpiper, and both of my brothers wore kilts. And when Jesse's, when Jesse's brother stood up to do the toast, he says, let's give a big hand to those two men that wore skirts in this windy weather. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. And then, you know, and, um, you know, life, uh, there's challenges along the way. Jesse and I have a great life. You know, I don't have biological children of my own, but I have two uh, stepchildren, like Jesse told you. And, you know, there's, there's been a recent miracle because Tony, through his substance abuse and everything, there was a rift for a while between him and I, and, and then it's been okay, but now since he's had a baby, him and I are getting closer, and it, it's really amazing. Just, you know, I cried when I saw him holding his baby because I've known him since he was he's 11, <laughs> and he's he's like my kid, and, uh, you know, so there's, there's healing there, and I think if we stay around Alcoholics Anonymous long enough, we can heal. You know, and and then our granddaughter in Texas, and I, I feel really blessed. You know, I'm from a big family, and I have family in Scotland and Ireland. And Jesse and I are going in a couple of weeks. Um, we're going to Ireland first for nine days, and then we're going to Scotland. And you know, my mother's turning 92 next month, and I'm going. We're going for her birthday because I've missed her last two birthdays due to COVID. And she's in pretty good health, but. You know, you just never know, you know, this program has taught me, you know, we get to enjoy life while we can. And, and you know, I wanted to share something too, because it's important to hear about the challenges. And I'm still okay on time, right? Yeah, good. Because I, I don't have my 45 minutes yet, so. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, Jesse and I went through this horrible, just four years ago it started, this horrible lawsuit. I'm not going to go into all the details, um, but I want to share it with you because it was a major challenge in sobriety, but this started four years ago, and it, it's just almost complete. It's pretty much over, but we were sued by people. It was all frivolous. It was all just people that have sued other people. They're hoping that you just pay them off, you know, give them some money, and they'll go away, and we hadn't done anything wrong. And we tried to settle this a few times. We really tried to settle it. And these people pushed it to a trial. We had a trial in 2020. Um, and there was a jury. And, and this was just, I was crazy at like 26 years of sobriety. I was, you know, writing, we're writing checks to attorneys. And I'm talking to God and trying to figure out why this is happening. Um, you know, and but then I had to really take it into one day at a time, and I had to get into either God is or God isn't, and I had to have faith, and I had to believe that nothing happens in God's world by mistake. But now, now I see the gifts in this, um, because we didn't think we were going to get all our attorney fees back. Um, 
you know, we won the trial, we won, it was all proven that everything was fraud and it came out in court that these people had done this to 20 other people and this is what, this is their career and it all came out, the jury came up and hugged us. I saw God's hand every, in every part of it because the judge signed the judgment, the country shut down, I think it was March 19th or something, 2020. The judge signed the judgment the day before, so it went through, because then all the courts are closed for two years. So we saw that with God. And, and it, you know, it was, it was horrible. You know, there was one day, a couple of years ago, we were going to court down in San Diego. It was August. I was 28 years sober and uh, working my program and doing my thing and being of service. We go into a restaurant to before court. It was really warm and get into this restaurant. And then, of course, we get, we're anxious because we're going to this hearing. The wait Jessie goes to the bathroom and the waitress comes over and she says, Hey, honey, how about a margarita and a side shot? And I'm like... Uh, and I, then I went, oh, not today. But in my mind, in my mind, I thought, oh my God, wouldn't that relieve everything? And then, and then, and I even never even drank margaritas. But in the moment, for a quick second, it was like it sounded good to ease that anxiety. But you see, in the morning, I had done my prayer and meditation. I was in a meeting the night before. I was current with my sponsor. I was spiritually fit. Um, at that day, and sometimes I wonder, you know, I have thought, what if I wasn't spiritually fit? I was in a state of stress, I was anxious, and and it came out in my mouth, it just, I said, not today, and I thought, who said that, you know? <laughs> and, and I really, it's not that, I never didn't want to drink or anything, it was just that, you know, you get caught, and so I think it's really important, you know, for this alcoholic, for me to do my daily practice, be current with my sponsor, you know, talk to God, work with others, and really stay spiritually fit. That's what I got that time. And so anyway, but what happened, the recent miracle, that was a miracle. Then there's another miracle just about a month ago. And this is a total God shot. We found out not only were we getting all our attorney fees back, but plus $1,000 extra. And I knew that's how God works. We're getting a thousand dollars more, and this was a this is a lot of money, and it was a really tough time. But you know, you get through it just one day at a time. I had to keep surrendering and surrendering and surrendering. I think I've learned more about surrender in this last four years and having my whole sobriety. But it all work it all works out. And then I look back and I ask myself, what did I learn? Because, you know, I have control issues, you know, I, I have some, and I, what did I learn? I learned one more time that I'm not in charge, that God has a plan, and I need to just let go, and I, I need to keep surrendering and do what's in front of me. What I do today is, yeah, I work with girls, I sponsor girls, I go to meetings, I have a commitment, I'm current with a sponsor. And I have the great honor of, um, I get to lead women's retreats, about three retreats a year, and we focus on emotional sobriety. And I feel really, feel really blessed. And, um, and I guess uh, there's not really much more I can say. I'm just grateful to be here. I'm grateful that all of you are here. And I'd like to close with the quote. It's by Master Eckhart. He's a German mystic. 
and he says, if the only prayer that we ever say is thank you, it will be sufficient, and thank you. Let's give Jesse and Ann a hand for good share. And, and Carlos, the cooking, and Fernando, the help. We need some help after cleaning up, helping Fernando take the stuff to the truck. And uh, anybody would like to volunteer for doing, uh, helping us out, come and see me or Fernando after the meeting. And uh, I'm your grapevine rep. <laughs> yeah! Two years, 54 bucks, you can't beat that. Meeting in a print. You never know when you're gonna get stuck on stupid, when you're gonna pull over and read, read one of these. And it'll straighten you right up in a minute. It really, that really helps me. I mean, I've been reading this stuff, especially when, if I'm a great vine representative, I better be reading something. Anyway, uh, I've been giving these out every week and you're supposed to read them, bring them back so we can recirculate them. Oh, I am not getting any back. I don't know where they are. Anyway, uh, our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. The Grapevine Lifeline. During the monumental year of change, members step up, work the program, and reach out in new ways as never before. In the last two years, this whole planet's been upside down. We've gone to uh, with COVID and zoom and and stuff like that and you know i'll always remember it you know i used to, i used to say to myself zoom you know it's it's kind of different for me too i like a live meeting i prefer a live meeting but you know one night we had a couple here that took a cake for two years never been to a live meeting off zoom only you know so there's a, a zoom is a very good thing for people that can't get out and people that uh, want, want need a meeting at a certain time, you can go all over the world with that stuff. So, you know, it's, we've really grown in, in ways we never grew before. So uh, I, it taught me to have an open mind, you know, and uh, reach, reach my hand out, you know, a little bit more. So with that, wait a minute. Where's our ticket man? Come on up here, Robert. Thank you. Robert. Come on, Robert. I'm Robert. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you guys for trusting me with your money. Thank you very much. I'm an electrician too. I don't know anyone. IBW Local 11. So today's winner is. I ain't picking it. <laughs> 626841 626841 yeah, I love you too. Go ahead. Anybody need a book? I got two. Anybody need a book? 
You want a 12 and 12? Newcomer. I, I need a 12 and 12. Okay, I'll give you a 12 and 12. Yeah, I, I, have, I, have, I have two of those. Anybody need a book? Yeah. Uh, Dad, where's that? Going twice. Oh, on his program. On his program. These are the promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past on which to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurities will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Now, after a moment of silence for the alcoholic that still suffers in and out of these rooms and the innocent children caught in the crossfire, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Whose Father? Our Father, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, for thy is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Come back. Way to go. Hey, welcome to today's podcast. We're going to be uh, listening to Joe McHugh talk about the 12th step. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. This is a great culmination of all the steps. So let's go ahead and pray with the uh, third step prayer, please. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, of thy love, of thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Amen. Review, review. Folks, we're reviewing so we can be of better service to our fellow man. Thank you so much for paying attention and listening up. Here's Joe McHugh. To get to step one, step 12, and it's a long way, we started the first step in our review. And the first step was the foundation of all of this, and the before tonight and talking about the 12 step we're going to get right around because this thing just goes right around from 1 to 12 and 12 back to 1. <clears throat> but we begin at the first step the foundation of recovery of course what is the problem and as we said this is uh, 
I think it's the greatest thing on the face of the earth for an alcoholic uh, was Alcoholics Anonymous because Alcoholics Anonymous is about the only place where a drunk can find out what's wrong with it. You know, uh, uh, every place else goes, every place else a drunk goes, they tell him what to do. <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous tells him what's wrong with him and then he'll know what to do. Uh, but uh, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And it was through, I was on a 12-step call, again, through another alcoholic. But the only way an alcoholic can find out where he is is through another alcoholic, you know? I could identify with this man. And, and I found out in the first step the exact nature of my problem. The first step said it was powerless over alcohol. And our lives have become unmanageable. And it talks about the two factors which make me powerless. I had a physical allergy to alcohol. I was an abnormal drinker. They called me a lot of other things, but really that's what I was. <laughs> I like what a guy said, that's a nice word for what they used to call me. Yeah. When I was an abnormal drinker, I did not drink like so-called normal temperate drinkers. When I took a drink, something occurred within me that did not occur in these people because I, had, I, had a, I was allergic to alcohol. When I took a drink, you know, I had a, a phenomenon of craving. I had a craving of alcohol. And this craving, was, <clears throat> this craving was a manifestation of this allergy. When I took a drink, this craving would start, and the doctor said I would go through the well-known spree. And, and once I took a drink all, all my life, I can't remember ever taking a drink without immediately wanting another drink, and another drink, and another drink, and another drink. And this is still what amazes, amazes me about social drinkers today, that they do not really, they don't crave alcohol. They take one, and they may, they, they may not take another one, but they don't want no more. In fact, they, you know, they tell us when they take a drink, it really makes them, after a couple of drinks, it becomes nauseous to them, makes them kind of dizzy, and it gives them a sense of being out of control. And it's really an uncomfortable feeling, and that's the way you should feel if you put some bad stuff in you like alcohol, because alcohol is a toxic drug. And the body normally has a, lets us know when they don't like what we put in it. But, but the alcoholic's body, uh, like a guy I know of North Carolina, he says, he said, everybody's got an alcohol strainer. You know, every, everybody come, is made, when they come here on the face of this earth, they got equipment to strain alcohol out, except the alcoholic and his is busted. We have a busted strainer. <laughs> and once I take a, a drink of alcohol, I do not feel nauseous and dizzy and out of control. When I take a drink of alcohol, I get a, a, a lift. When I take a drink of alcohol, I get a sense of being in control. And immediately, I have a craving for a second drink. So I reach over and take another drink. And when I take that second drink, I, I, put, I put two in there, now it's double. So I crave harder. So I take another one, and another one, and another one. I go through the well-known spree, and get in a lot of trouble, drink too much, I embarrass myself, I do something. I always did something from the very first drink, very first night. I just I went beyond what I what I would have done, 
in every time in my life. And I would emerge like every alcoholic down at the bar when I quit drinking. I said, I will never do that again. But that wasn't my main problem. My main problem was in my mind. I had a mental obsession. <coughs> See, alcohol did something for me that it didn't do for those people. Uh, I had this uh, all my life. The doctor says I was restless and irritable and discontent. You know, I, I just didn't fit in. I just didn't feel just as good about myself as I seemed to be. Always there was something missing in my life. And somewhere along the early, when I was about 18 years old, I took this first drink. You know, things came together. I remember that night very vividly. That's what the doctor says. I remember my first drink. I don't know, that's not a prerequisite to being alcoholic. But I don't remember my first uh, banana split. <laughs> didn't, it didn't do nothing for me. I don't remember my first cold call at Dr. Pepper, a pork chop. <laughs> I don't remember none of those. But I remember my first drink. I remember the people I was with, what brand it was, where it was at, and I remember. So the doctor says, we remember the sense and ease and comfort that came at once by taking a few drinks of alcohol. And I, when I, so it, it must have meant something to me. When I took those few drinks, this is the thing that, that, that stuck in my mind and was burned into my mind. And you know, it was so strong that, that even with all the pain and suffering I went through and the humiliation from alcohol, after coming off of one of those things and after getting into trouble and all these situations, I, the, this sense of ease and comfort that alcohol gave me I remember that stronger than I did all the pain. It was so strong that it would push out all the pain. Years and years of pain. And the only thing I could think of was this sense of ease and comfort. And so I would believe that lie, and this was what would make me take that first drink. And once I put that first drink in my system, it set off the phenomenal craving, and I was in a lot of trouble. So long as I had that in my mind, I was powerless over alcohol. The main problem of, was in my mind, this obsession, remembering that sense of needs and comfort. So once we, once we have these two things make us powerless over alcohol, the second step is very simple, and it's based on the first step. You know, if we're powerless, the solution is power, and obviously, this power would have to work in the mind. We, can't, we can live with the allergy. So therefore, the second step came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And we, if it, we could remove this obsession. If we, didn't, we weren't restless and terrible discontent, we would never think about this, about this sense of ease and comfort because we would be already comfortable. So the second step talks about we believe this is the solution to this problem. Then we come to the real program of recovery. You know, once we do this, this is a foundation, and, and if every alcoholic can get to this point, he hasn't done anything at this time, but he's the first time he can see where he's at. Step one is what's going on with him, and he has a solution. Now, the main thing now is to find this power. You know, if you're powerless over here, and the solution is power, 
then the main job is, well, let's find this power. How do we find this power? This is the main purpose of the book and the program is to enable us to find a power greater than ourselves, which will solve our problem. So the first step in finding this thing is a decision. All action begins with decision. And he says, you know, we have a decision. We can decide, we can make that, we gotta look at these things and decide, do we wanna be powerless or do we want this power? We have to decide between these things. And we make a decision. If this, we make a decision, all of us will choose the power. And if we choose this, then we have to give up certain things. You know, we have to give up our will. No, we alcoholics have got a lot of that. You know, that's one thing about alcoholism, that to recover from alcoholism, we got to give up probably the two things that we love the most. Number one is alcohol, and number two is self-will. Boy, those are, that's tough. That's a tough decision. So we make a decision here to turn over our will, and this is simply our directions of our lives, over the care of God as we understand him. And then we go to work to do this. There's certain work's got to be done. So we have the, the action steps, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. These are the action steps that carry out the decision. And as we said earlier, you know, we alcoholics are, are, are self-will run right, our book says. There are certain things within us that block us off from God. Our book, and kind of throughout it talks about this thing is within us. God is within man. All great philosophers talk about that. Deep down in every man, woman, and child is a formal conception of God. Many years ago, a man said that the kingdom is God is within man. All, all philosophers talk, we have some guidance, we have some direction, and we know how to live. I'm, I've never seen an alcoholic that didn't know how to live. He didn't know right from wrong, but he simply Seemed like he couldn't get it to work. Now, I always didn't know what to do. And the only time I used it was after the fact. You know, the next morning I said, doggone it, you know you shouldn't have done that. That was the story of my life. You know, but I just couldn't live with it up front. It was there. But it was covered up. You know, it was covered up by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things about worldly things and my emotions, but it was always there. So step four is all about carrying out the decision. If I wanted God to, to direct my life, there are certain things within me that I have to get rid of. And step four is all about inventory and analyzing these things. And, I, and he talked about what we went through with resentments. And I saw how these things dominated my life. And I saw how these things uh, controlled and run my life on a daily basis. We talked about uh, fears. We talked about our sex conduct of the past. And we listened and analyzed those things. In step five, we were, we learned more about them by discussing them with uh, another human being, with God and ourselves, another human being. And it improved on the information that we got in step four. And once we got these things out and looked at them and seen the damage and effect of our lives and how they were blocking us, then in step six, we become willing to get rid of them. And in step seven, we ask God to remove them. So in these four steps, we went to work on ourselves. And then the next phase of steps, talks, eight and nine, talks about our relationship with others. These are things, too, that have grown out of self, the damage of the past. So in eight and nine, we worked on 
our relationship with others. And then step 10, we went back and continued to work on, uh, on our, our relationship with God. We continued to work on ourselves. We continued to work on our relationship with others. And we, we went back in the process of step 10 and continued to clean up all three general areas. Once we got these things out of the way and these things that blocked us from God, then in step 11, we were able to receive God into our lives. We were able for the first time to, to, to carry out the decision in step three. You know, the whole, we said the whole step to about three, making the decision to turn over our will, clearing out the things that block us with these steps. And then in step 11, we, step 11, we received God's will. So it's a changing of directions, from self-directions to God's direction. So step 11 is really the final part, and this is, this is the ultimate area that we come to. Now 12 comes right after 11, having had. If you had 11, if you are able to receive God's direction, you have had a, a spiritual experience. But then step 12 tonight says, you know, having had this, now we give it away. Now we have something to give. And I think this is the, you know, the real strength of AA, probably one of the most, most vital steps in my life. I said, of all these steps, which are all giving steps, they are things that bring to your life. Possibly one of the most single things that have affected my life is, is a 12th step. That, that actually we grow more through giving than we do through receiving in the first 11. The 12th step is a very big growth step. We grow through giving. And I know when I first come to AA, this is a, I didn't know well, all of this sounds funny. If you're here tonight the first time, it's how are you going to grow through giving something away? Go ahead. But it's been said many times. You know, many thousand years ago, a man said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it's more blessed to give with the 12th step than to receive through all the eleven that we do grow through giving. Now, the 12th step is, uh, is a very precise step in the big book. And reason that, I don't know why Bill, I guess he knew the foundation of AA depended on that because it wasn't but a 100 people to begin with. And we can see the power of that, of the millions of million or so people that are sober as a result of 100 people starting the 12th step. And um, the 12th step is very specific. You know, we read it off, and uh, I, um, sometimes we run through it real fast, and we don't hear it being read. I like to specifically be to, to, to look at it, and, and when we talk about it, and get all the words and see what he's saying. He says, having had a spiritual awakening, he says, as the results of these steps. You know, it, it's there. He didn't say a results. He said as the results. So that means that the 11 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't give you but one one thing, the results, a spiritual awakening. You know, and we've said as we went through that, you know, that was a, a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. 
And if you have a personality change, fish the cuff, alcoholism, uh, you don't have to not drink anymore. You are not the same person. You're not the person you were. You have had a change in your life. And Bill said a spiritual experience is very simple. It's no big deal. They said when you can believe, when you can think, when you can feel and you can do things that you couldn't do on your, on your own unaided. And that's very simple, you know. And I think it's quite obvious. You know, people say, well, you know, I, I, can, I can feel things that I couldn't feel before. I can feel love. Before, I used to think it was coming in heat, you know, but I can feel love. I, I can feel concern for another person. Many, many things that I couldn't feel before. I, I don't believe the same. I used to believe God kept score on you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And when, he, when you got, uh, like I did, so far behind, he just said, well, <laughs> you out of the game, you know. <laughs> I used to believe that. Well, I used to believe many of these things. Um, I can do things that I couldn't do before, obviously. Well, the main one, I can stay sober. So, step 12 is the ultimate step. You know, all of these steps are steps in which we take. Bring things to you. All you got to do is work them, and they just, you don't do nothing. The first 11 steps are, are brains. Bring, brings all these good things into your life. The 11 steps are all things that we take. We, you know, when we first come in, we, we're just like babies. These are just, the, they just give to us. You know? We don't do nothing. We work the steps, and the steps bring these things into our life. The 12th step <clears throat> is a step in which we give. The 11 receive and through the 12, the 12th one, we give, you know. We receive from, from the first 11, and then the 12th, having had, then we can give. You know, many years ago, was a, a man said that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. We get more blessings from giving. And so it all hinges on this 12th, and really the 12th, as we say, when we get down to it and look at it, it's got a lot to do with the first step. You know, the first step, we, we, we saw where we were and we got the answer. And I saw where I was through another alcoholic. And in step two, it says we come to believe, and once we come to believe, that's the beginning. And once we believe, we have to make a decision in step three. And once the decision, we have to take some actions which is four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And once we work those steps, we get the promises of the book. We get the promises on page 83 and 84 and 84 and 85. And once these promises are fulfilled, then we know the program works. And, and the 12th step is saying, if you know the program works, if you have gotten results, if you have had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps, then you know it works. You don't believe, you used to believe in step two. But if it works, then you know it works. You have faith. And the one who knows, that's the 12 step person, wants you to get the 12 steps, then you know. Now what you know, you are supposed to carry it back to the new man. 
and he can look at you and you can't help him know but by looking at you he can begin to believe and he can get started this is the way I, I started you know, it was a guy named Charles and and I remember it was uh, almost 25 years ago I walked he walked into he uh, Alcoholics Anonymous came to me I was uh, in a position where I couldn't get there, I was locked up. <coughs> and I was locked up in this nut house and bars on the windows with about 80 other nuts. And uh, so Alcoholics Anonymous came to me. And this guy came in there that night, and I remember I always tell about it, and I went to my first AA meeting because the little guy had been nice to me and, and God uses strange people to work in our life. You know, it isn't the high and the mighty and the learned. Well, he, he didn't choose those kind of people. This guy uh, let me sit around about two days before he said anything to me. But I finally found out what was going on in this instance, in this place and why they didn't talk to you too much and why, you know, because See, they were all, all these nuts was in there. Now, what happened, see, all, if you ask one of them nuts what he was doing in there, all the nuts said they were alcoholics. Well, I'm an alcoholic. It's the only place I have ever been before or since where alcoholism was a status symbol. On this, on this board, it was a, you was, you know, but all the, all, what happened, see, we alcoholics got good treatment on the ward. The mental patients never got, you know, nobody really cared anything about the mental patients. There was about 75 mental patients in there. And some of these people had been there, there was one man that had been there actually since he was six years old and he was 36. And that was his life in there. Uh, in fact, I still see him when I go to that hospital on the, on the grounds in Benton Unit. He'd been there all his life. There were many people like that at this time, and this was all they knew. This was their home, and this all they knew. Now, we alcoholics didn't stay for 30 days in those days, and it really wasn't, they didn't do anything to us. They didn't, wasn't much of a treatment. But they, uh, we got good treatment. We had visitors. The aides would talk to us, and they treated us different than they did the mental people. So the mental people saw this, and uh, when you ask one of them in there, they say, I'm an alcoholic. See, they wanted to be in the class. They wanted to be big shots like us. <laughs> now, we alcoholics, when you asked us what was wrong with us, we said nervous breakdowns. You know, you know, you know, <laughs> yeah. But I said, hey, I, I talk, I've talked about this a lot of times, and it really, it, it does. It gets to me to to think, you know, about how God works in the human life. And what about the 12th step? It's the most important thing in my life. That Monday morning, I got in there on Saturday, that Monday morning, a little, a little patient, one of the alcoholics on the ward, and I love the worker. I, I love Paul. Ora was my my 12-step man. Oral wasn't a learned man in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, 
I think most of us think, well, I gotta meet somebody and they the leader of AA, which we don't have, by the way. You know, I wanted the leader. You know, I wanted the expert. But I didn't get it. My approach to Alcoholics Anonymous, my first contact to Alcoholics Anonymous was a mental patient on the ward. He had about two weeks of locked up sobriety in the <laughs> He had the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, and it had a carton of caramel cigarettes. And you know what got me. You know, I was, I had 50 cents when I got there. And this guy had a, and I blew that on one pack of cigarettes and a couple of candy bars. I believe cigarettes was 30 cents in those days. And this guy sat down beside me that morning with a, with a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and a carton. And I, he didn't have a carton, but I seen him going in there getting them from the aid out of his carton. Now nobody on, our, on this ward had a, had a, had a, a, even a pack of cigarettes. Now I love the work of Paul. You know, Paul says God's grace is sufficient. And that's about what God is in our lives. God ain't no big deal. God in the human life is just enough every day. He's got a lot of folks to take care of. And oil was enough for me. You know, I didn't have need, need no learned person. Oil had the book, had a carton of camel cigarettes, and the reason it attracted me because they had these cigarettes. And I didn't have any smokes, you know. Uh, I'm talking about your life is unmanageable. I can see how unmanageable my life was. Here I am there, broke, no cigarettes. They give me some roll on tobacco. Boy, you ought to see me in there wrestling with that stuff. Just coming off a drug and I'm shaking it. And I never rolled one in my life anyway. He never rolled a cigarette in my life. One a cigarette so bad, and here I am doing this and get it all wet and fall down. Fall in my lap. The only way I, and, and talk about on the manageability, the only way I could smoke was take my tobacco and paper and give it to one of them nuts and let him roll it and lick it and give it back to him. <laughs> and here this guy got a whole carton, man, sitting there and a big book. And he comes up to me and we get him to talk. And he, he talks about, for many years I used to say, Oral talked to me about, we talked about the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, but we didn't. Or didn't know anything about it. I surely didn't know anything about it. Or had probably been to two meetings. But I think it's so important to me tonight and to and for the rest of my life in some way to live the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, we are living examples whether we, we think it or not in our community. We are we are living big books. You know, and that's why it's important. Because well, there might be somebody out there. We might be, our lives might be an example to, to somebody. Because that's why I'm here tonight, because there was a guy, a man that was living the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he was coming to the hospital every, every Wednesday night. And Oral didn't talk about the big book. Oral talked about this man. Oral talked about him incessant to me for three days. He told me all about it. And that Wednesday night, uh, this is when things when I went to my first meeting. I went to my meeting because Or had been nice to me. And this is where these guys came and, and what they did basically is just like the book said. These guys come in there and they, I expect them to, to meddle in my business. You know, usually do-gooders. I thought they were do-gooders. They say, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do that. 
But this guy come in real nice and got up there and all three of them started talking about their own lives. You know, that's the funny thing. That's what a 12-step call is. When we go to a new alcoholic, we sit down and they did it real good that night. We tell him our story. We tell him our experience. Which the book says, start us, find, the book says, see your man alone, learn something about him. And when you sit down with him, begin to tell him about your alcoholism. Tell him how baffled you were. Tell him about the problems in your life. That's what a 12-step call is all about. See, because that, uh, that drunk is lost. This I was, looks like I was lost 25 years ago. I was lost. And these guys sat down and told me their story. And when they told me their story, I was able to find myself in them. They just laid down their lives. They said the greatest gift that an individual is given is one who lays down his life for another. Not physically, but you lay down your experience, your problems. And because if they hadn't did it, I would have never been able to find, I was so mixed up and so lost, but I never would have found where I was. I never would have seen the first step, but I saw my first step through then. He did exactly like the book says, do it. So let him ask you, what did you do? And this guy talked to him. And we go out on a 12-step call, it's, it's all about, and another, if there's another alcoholic anywhere tonight, off, there's one here, and he's lost. I mean, He's lost in his life. He's lost just like I was. He's lost in the, in the problem of alcoholism. He's lost in the confusion of alcoholism. And the only way he's going to ever find himself is, is find another point of identification. How do you, how, how can you, if you're lost, how do you, if you got to have something to identify with. And this man walked in there and he told his story. He told me about his life. He told me about his predicament. He talked insensitive about where he was, what trouble he was in his life. And it sounded like mine. I said, man, for the first, that guy is, I'm, I'm just like that guy. He, I was able to tie on to something. You know, I was just like throwing out a lifeline. I was able for the first time in all this confusion. And this guy told his story. He, and that's what, it, what we do on the 12-step call, is we talk about, on a 12-step call, we talk about our powerlessness over alcoholism. We talk about our first step. That's right. You know, I went there, I was mad, like most of them. I was mad, you know, I, I don't want to go to this old damn old meeting. What time is it over? Here. <laughs> Somebody here nice think the same thing. <laughs> what time is it start? What time is it over, you know? And, and this guy got up there and I said, if he's gonna meddle in my business, I know they're gonna, no, every, all do good. You know, I had him picked. I didn't know a thing about AA, but I thought it would be like, I figured it out, something like the Plain Clothes Salvation Army. The same thing, didn't have no uniform, but the same kind of outfit. He goes, I'm gonna tell you what to do. So this guy come in there and he didn't, he talked about himself. He talked about himself so much that night that when he had, he caught my ear. I was able to identify with him and my attitude began to change, and I went over and asked him, I said, what do you think I should do? Boy, I remember he looked down at me, he said, I don't give a damn what you do. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm telling you what I did. 
And I think this is, you know, this is what really turned me on about this. You know, I don't talk about that a lot, but you know, the guy that, that had the cigarettes, the guy that was there, kind of difficult at the time, but the guy that was there, the guy, the little guy had the cigarettes, the little guy that sat down and gave me cigarettes and, and, and talked to me about these guys from Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, this guy never was able to stay sober. Stayed sober six months, and he got drunk. This was in 1962 and 1965 when the Benton Detox Center opened up. I remember when it opened. Uh, uh, it was open a little while, and they brought this little guy to the detox center, the same guy. Uh, he never, he was sick, and they called me to go down there to see him, and I had maybe two and a half years or three years sobriety, and I went down to visit with him. On several occasions after that, Three or four years, he would end up at the detox center again, and I would go down to see him. Uh, once I was at, went to his home down in Southern Park State to visit with him. Uh, about eight or nine years after that, when the syringe house was first opened at the old syringe house, a guy came to me one day and he said, here's uh, a friend of yours needs some help. And I said, who is it? And he said, it's Aura. And I went out there in the back of a car. It's, he, it's this guy laying in there, and he didn't, he didn't even resemble the same person that, that I'd known 10 years ago. But that was a guy who brought me the message. Uh, about less than three or four months after that, he went around the curb in an automobile and he was killed. This guy never got the message he brought me. So, but, you know, so our responsibility is not to see that the message works, we do, you know, only, we can only recover through a spiritual experience, and that's beyond our power. We're not healers. We don't have the responsibility to choose. Man, I'm glad we don't. If we could heal a person, we'd say, I'm gonna fix this one over here. And if we had the responsibility to choose who gets this message, I probably wouldn't be here, because I don't think I would have been chosen. Maybe you wouldn't have been here. Maybe you wouldn't have been chosen. So our responsibility is to carry this message to other alcoholics and, and to let the message take care of itself. You know, uh, if it takes, okay. My book says if the person wants it, uh, help it. If he don't want it, leave him alone. I'm sure you can find somebody else. Come in. You know, we're not supposed to force this on anybody. We're not supposed to pry into people's lives. Our job is simply to carry, our responsibility is carry this message. And we grow through giving, whether the, whether whether it works, or whether it takes, or whether it helps another individual, it doesn't matter. We grow through giving. But once you find one, learn something about his background, how to approach him, and say, tell, tell him about your drinking first. You know, that's, tell him about your experience with alcohol. Tell him how you were, you know, how baffled you were. Tell him about this, uh, this, this, this allergy to alcohol. And then tell him about, you know, your, your mind. Tell him how, how you tried to stop and how you failed. And let the man identify with all these little things in your life. Then after he says, after you do that, he says, then tell him what your solution is. And this is about the only thing that we do on a 12-step call. And as an alcoholic, about the only thing I can do is, is do that. I can, I can share my experiences. I can share my experiences with the problems with alcohol. And then I can tell the person, if he's interested, what my answer was. 
And if he's interested in this, then I can walk with him through this plan program of action. This is what, if we read our book, it tells us about 12 step. It tells us what sponsorship is all about. It tells us how to work with other alcoholics. It is very, we work with other alcoholics the same way we recovered with this program. We show them what their problem is. We show them what the solution is. Then we walk with them through this plan program of action. It's a very simple thing to do. We should be familiar with it because we have applied it to our lives and, and we have the answers. You know, we, we, we have the answers to alcoholism. We have the answers to alcohol. We have experienced alcoholism. We're the only people on the face of this earth. You know, we hear about all these people. You can see a lot of it on TV about do this, do this, do this. This will help you, this will help you. Boy, I'm telling you, I mean, they didn't have those things. I'm glad it didn't happen when I was around. They confused the hell out of us. But we, in Alcoholics Anonymous, regardless of what anybody says, and we have no, we're not in competition with anybody, but we in Alcoholics Anonymous are the only people in the world who have experienced alcoholism and recovered from it. We are. We are the only people in the world who have experienced alcoholism and recover from it. So we have a vital message, a vital message for the world. And all of us have a purpose in life. You know, God created everybody in here for a purpose. You know, I created, created, I created, didn't create us for us. He created us for his purpose. And I think everybody the happiest we're going to ever be in life is when we find, you know, why were we created? What purpose are we to serve in life? I think oil was a purpose in my life. And I think one of the most important things in my life that, you know, to be able to sometimes feel like that I'm fulfilling my purpose. Yeah. And this, this gives some... Uh, some purpose to my alcoholism. Maybe this is why I suffered alcoholism. Maybe this is why I recovered. To, to help other people, to carry this message to other people. And the more we, as we fulfill our purpose, you know, the more rewarding our life gets. You know, it, it talks about it in the big, big book, it talks about this, this light. You know, if our candle is lit, then we put it under a bushel. And, and do we, this is not just a, a light itself, it's enlightenment. This, in, this light can light up another life. Another person that's lost. And I think that's just our responsibility, having, having to walk into, into this light, that we pass this light some way to another individual. Uh, and that sometimes, you know, we return and, and, uh, and some of us say, you know, to say thank you. You know, this is really, this is a gift, you know. I think God was good enough to work in my life to give me this, this new way of life, and, and this is my responsibility. You know, God don't want nothing I could, I, he never, you know, I used to say, if you do this, I do that. He don't make no deals, because he didn't ever need nothing I had. <laughs> he didn't need nothing I had. But he's saying, though, if you appreciate what I've given you, if you really 
appreciate what I've given you. Don't do it for me. I don't need anything yet. Give it to another person. This is on the 12th step. But I think through God's grace, a gift unwarranted. Well, we were not chosen, but we were given this thing. And our job in the 12th step is to carry this message, this message that I have recovered as a result of these steps. This is the message we carry to other alcoholics. Now, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes that we all do with all these steps in 12 steps. You know, the 12 steps is so much about starting the guy on the first step, showing him where he is. For many years, the first few years I've come to the program, I, st I started drunk out on the third step. <laughs> I'd go to him and say, you need God, man. <laughs> Poor guy, he didn't even know what the matter with him, you know. <laughs> some, of them st some of them I started out on the inventory. <laughs> but we have a precise way of doing this. Give that person a chance. Give him, you know, Bill. Bill made this mistake. Bill, Bill made this mistake, and he, you know, we follow the same path. Bill had this vital spiritual experience in his life. Man, he, it was such a, it is, it was such a part, it is an overwhelming thing to find change in your life. So he, he immediately left the hospital, and for six months he was running all over New York talking to drunks trying to give them this great experience he had, trying to give them his recovery program. Just before going to Akron, he happened to be down to Towns Hospital, and Dr. Silkworth called him in one day. And talking to Dr. Silkworth, you know, Bill didn't have any, have any plan to what he was doing. He said, Bill, why don't you quit talking to them drunks about your recovery? Why don't you quit talking to them drunks about your spiritual experience? Why don't you quit talking to these new people about this great thing you had. And why don't you start telling them what I told you about what is their problem, their illness. Start, maybe if you showed them what they were, where they are, if you told them what was wrong with them, then maybe they would buy into your program. So this is why on a 12-step call, you know, we talk, we're talking to a person that's lost. We're talking to a person who's confused. He's talking to a person who's trying to identify with something. But the first step is the beginning. And we lay in the foundation for everything we're going to do with a new person. And I thank God that my sponsor that night, when he walked in there that night, he was, it was a classic to me because I was able to see where he was. And I found on the, 12, on the last and final part of the 12th step, it says that, that we practice these principles in all our affairs. You know, and over in our book, after it wrote, the 12 chapter wrote out, it talks about there that uh, these, are, these, these, are, these are principles. For, after the steps, it talks about the principles. They are guides to progress. The principles we are set down are guides to progress. So the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a set of principles. These are the principles that we practice in all our affairs. And after all, if they, they worked on the worst problem in our life, why not use them on other things? The principle, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, as Bill said, they are old as mankind himself. The principles uh, are, are, can be found in any great living program. There's nothing new 
No, there is no new, new principles to the way a man should live. And in fact, you know, if we come back uh, on the face of this earth two or three thousand years from now, and men are still here, the principle of living is going to be the same. You know, it's a principle is something that don't change. Like what goes up is going to come down. It's been doing that for thousands of years. <laughs> and it's always, what goes up is going to come down. A principle is really a, a law that it seemed to have been acted by something greater than us. Right? A laws by a power greater than ourselves. We, 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 live, we see these principles, and they never change. Now, so there is a design to the living. There's a design to, to everything that we do. There's a design to everything on the face of this earth. And we usually, uh, it's a funny thing how we usually know these things and apply them in, our, in all areas of our life itself to living. Everything on this earth has a design to it. And that's what our book says. Our book has given us a design of living. You know, as we said throughout, you know, the first thing is to get the inside together, one, two, and three. Uh, the spiritual life, four, five, six, and seven is the mind. Eight and nine is our relationship with others. We, that's a design to life. And once we, once we can live by this design and live within this design and function as human beings should function, then we will, have, we will have peace. We will have serenity. We will have a comfortable, happy life. If we live our lives as they were designed. You know, but it, what, my trouble was I, I lived beyond my, my capabilities. I tried to run the show myself. But I book, everything has a, a limitation to it. Everything has a design. And that was my problem. I, I didn't have any principles. No one ever showed me how to live in my life. I, I, I come from a great family, and I was around a lot of great people, and I was exposed to some people, some well-meaning people in my life. All of them tried for some reason. Now, I went to school. I went to college. So. And I, I went to many, many different places. I around a lot of great people. Everybody tried. They all talked. I remember listening to all that stuff. Some of it I didn't like. God, I mean. Everybody told me a lot of things in my life. Alcoholics Anonymous is the first group of people who ever told me how to live. They gave me the directions for living. And that's what the principles are, directions. They said, hey, here's how you live. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. And then they say, if you get it, carry it to somebody else and show him how to live. It's that simple. All those years, no one told me how to do it. Now, the rest of them went about it a different way. They didn't show me how to live. They gave me the rules. But you know, there's a whole lot of difference with you than the principles and rules. Uh, when you ain't got the principles, you'll break all the rules. And that was my trouble. Rules and me had it. I mean, I hated rules. But I found out once the people at Alcoholics Anonymous gave me the directions, I ain't had a lot of problems with the rules. So, so the principles 
are really the directions of the laws to live by. These are the laws in which man should live by. And there, there are directions that come with everything. Like say, everything on earth has. If you go to buy something, you open up the product. When you open the box, they got a lot of paper in the box. And you probably have to put it together too. <laughs> but somewhere in that box, you're gonna find a little white slip of paper with some little instructions to say, you know, tell you how to use this thing you just bought. And if you will, uh, which many of us don't, but if you will take that out and read it, <laughs> you know what I mean? If you will read that thing, take time out and read it, it might sound stupid. And I know you're smarter than that. I, you know, I'm always smarter than them things that people put in them things. <laughs> and they look kind of dumb. But if you read them and apply them to that thing as you use it, you know it'll last longer. <clears throat> You'll get better service out of it. And they are even, and if you send it back in, they are even giving you warranty on it if you use it like they told you to. Of course, if you use it like you told it to, you probably ain't gonna need nothing back. Now, everything on earth has a set of directions of how to use. Surely, you know, man, we are the most, we are the highest, and there is a set of directions for man to use his life. And that's what these principles are. And they haven't been hidden. They're in the Bible. They're in many great living books. And they're all the same. Now the wording might be different. You know what I mean? Uh, it might sound different, but the way to live, there is but one way to live. And surely if we, if we follow these directions and apply them in our lives, and live our lives the way God designed us to, then we will have peace and contentment and all the great things that we're looking for in life. And, and surely, by God, surely we won't be restless and irritable and discontent and have to drink alcohol in order to live. Anybody that's drinking alcohol or taking drugs, you know, to live is not following directions. He's not using his life within a design. And just as the thing we buy, you know, each, each, each thing we buy has the directions in it. The directions are always written by the creed of the product. You know, if you buy something, General Electric, the General Electric writes out the principles and puts it in the box. You know, God made man. And he, he put these principles, he, and he wrote the principles for living. And he put them in, in a lot of great philosophies and a lot of great a lot of great movements. They have been on the face of this earth. And they put them into the, pro, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think the greatest thing that, that what AA gives, it gives us a design and the directions to live by. And, and we still have the opportunity. Surely we give everybody the right. You can steal that. You can, you, you can use them. They're free. If someone here tonight, these are directions you hear, and AA has these things to offer. And if you want to do it your way, you're free to do that. You're free to do that. You know, I think one of the, the greatest things that's, uh, of the 12th step is the great powers of it. And we grow through giving. You know, that, as we said, the greatest growth is to lay down your life for another human being. And we get more through giving than we do with receiving. I think 
that as we do this, we grow and grow continuously. And our book says that we hope you won't want to miss this. And I think it's one of the great wonders of my life and the great experience of Alcoholics Anonymous is to see, it says, to watch, uh, you know, to watch loneliness fade in an individual's life through the 12th step, through the person you work with, to watch this loneliness fade and to watch him get up himself you know, and watch him help other people. I'm sure that this is something you don't want to miss. And I think this is a great part of growth and to watch the fellowship grow up as it has here and, and watch these people help other people and to watch these things change. This has been really the wonders of my life and surely one of the wonders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we complete the 12 step tonight. Next week we'll go back again, just like the 12 steps do. And we finish the 12 step, we'll go back and begin the first step. What is the problem? So next week we'll begin with step one. There you go. Thank you very much for paying attention. God bless you.